Good morning. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies on this rainy Monday morning. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here at CSIS and Director of the Europe Program. We are absolutely delighted to welcome Admiral Jamie Fogo, Commander of Allied Joint Forces Command Naples, Commander U.S. Naval Forces Europe, and Commander U.S. Naval Forces Africa. I'm not sure that title fits on a business card, but it's extremely impressive, and we're delighted that Admiral Fogo is here with us. Before I introduce the Admiral properly and welcome, up, welcome him up to the podium, I just want to use this opportunity to talk to you a little bit about some ongoing research that CSIS has been engaged in for the past year. Uh, the Europe program in cooperation with Dr. John Alterman, who directs our Middle East program. We have been looking at the Eastern Mediterranean as a geostrategic flashpoint. It's not too common that two programs at CSIS, the Europe program and the Middle East program, combine efforts to look at a specific region. But it is, in fact, this region, and as you can see from the map above, that falls within this geopolitical seam between Europe and between the Middle East. And as we've uh, undertaken our research, we have been focused on the new trends in the region. And certainly, uh, one of those is a defense posture, uh, not only looking at Russia's military footprint in the Eastern Mediterranean as it grows, but also assessing NATO's footprint. We've also looked at migration as a major challenge that will continue uh, to not only impact southern Europe, but of course across Europe, and how NATO, how the Middle East addresses these migration challenges. And as you can see, the numbers and the arcs of the flow, the Eastern Mediterranean is a critical element of these migration patterns. The central, migration, uh, central Mediterranean route this year to Italy, again, uh, suggests that the Mediterranean is a major migration route. And part of this migration press is due to the demographics of the region. As you see from North Africa and the Middle East, uh, the demographic bubble that's coming up as, in fact, Europe's demographic uh, decline begins. So these are the trends we're looking at. Uh, in addition, and this is another projected demographic dynamic, um, this is all part of the report we'll be releasing fairly soon that looks at all these key trends. Our, our recommendations certainly for this region, the resolution of the Syrian conflict is absolutely vital. And part of that is, of course, the future of Turkey and how Turkey uh, will remain either anchored to the Euro-Atlantic community or it will begin to have its own orientation towards Russia and towards the Middle East. And that's a very critical part of our final conclusions in our report. The other component is how to re-anchor this region towards the Euro-Atlantic, and certainly one of our important recommendations is to develop a more robust naval presence in the region, uh, looking to expand those partnerships with uh, NATO allies and close NATO partners. So that's why it was absolutely uh, a, a, an important moment to invite Admiral Fogo here to have this conversation at this timely moment. Admiral Fogo is a submariner, so submarines are in his heart, and uh, he has uh, commanded an attack submarine, and as well has, uh, uh, has been commander of submarines Allied Naval Forces South. 
He has also been uh, the NATO Task Force, Force Commander in Joint Task Force Unif Unified Protector in Libya. He has served and commanded as the U.S. Sixth Fleet Naval Strike and Support Forces, NATO. When he is ashore, he has served with great distinction as executive assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He served as the executive officer to the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, as well as uh, commander of UCOM, and he's directed the Navy staff. Uh, it, is, uh, it is an incredibly distinguished career, and uh, he is an incredibly important place and moment for the United States in this vital part of the world, the Eastern Mediterranean. So with that and with your applause, please join me in welcoming Admiral Fogel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather, and it is great to be back at CSIS today. Uh, truly appreciate your warm welcome and introduction. Um, it's a cold, wet, rainy day, and I must mea culpa up front and tell you that uh, I've been traveling quite a bit lately, and when you travel, you meet all sorts of new and interesting people. I was in Belgrade, and I somehow contracted the Belgrade flu from some of our folks in the military liaison officer. I'm just coming off the tail end of that. I was in Iraq in a warmer climate last week, so that helped a little bit to kind of rehabilitate me. But if I stop and take a cough drop, you'll, you'll forgive me or grab uh, water while I'm up here on the stage <coughs> as I get through the presentation. So uh, the topic uh, I was given today was the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, I'm going to kind of get there, but I'm going to go in a roundabout way. The Eastern Mediterranean is uh, not a new maritime focal point for NATO or for the United States. The first Mediterranean fleet, what would have been the Sixth Fleet, sailed from Menorca, the home of David Farragut's father, during the Barbary Wars uh, in our past American history. In uh, 1967, 34 American sailors died during the attack on USS Liberty during the Yom Kippur War. And in October 1973, the Soviet Fifth Escadra, numbering 73 surface ships and 23 submarines, was sailing in the Mediterranean. In 2011, the Bataan and Kearsarge Amphibious Readiness Group and Marine Expeditionary Unit participated in JTF Odyssey Dawn and Unified Protector over a period of nine months. I was the J3 for that operation as a one-star naval officer working for Admiral Harry Harris and Admiral Sam Locklear. And lo and behold, I find myself in Admiral Locklear's position today. In April of last year, two Six Fleet destroyers launched 59 Tomahawk missiles to destroy an Assad regime chemical weapons compound. So the MED is bounded by the Suez, the Dardanelles, the, the Straits of Gibraltar, and this former Roman lake laps on the southern shores of the Alliance and traces an arc of fluctuating insecurity and instability at NATO's periphery. This morning, I'll be speaking as a NATO commander and a U.S. Navy operational commander. Before I start, the nuance of that difference is sometimes lost on audiences where I go. So I want to ensure that the audience understands the difference. As the chief of naval uh, uh, forces Europe and the chief of naval forces Africa, I'm responsible for all U.S. naval operations for two combatant commanders in Europe, Commander Yukon and Commander Africom. 
This area of responsibility spans from the Arctic to the South Africa and from the middle of the Atlantic to the Horn of Africa. But as a NATO commander, commander of Allied Joint <coughs> Force Command, Naples, my responsibilities are broader and they pertain to the full spectrum of joint operations, including the air and the land component. Uh, as a NATO commander, I like to talk about my five big rocks. Now, my PAO's here. She doesn't like me to say the big rocks. She goes, sir, call them focus areas, please. <laughs> so in the official brochure that we have for the uh, headquarters, they're focus areas. But they are big rocks. They're, they're big rocks that are sometimes insurmountable and sometimes kind of hard to put together. You know, you've heard the expression, build me a rock. We got five of them and we're working really hard throughout the theater. Uh, and they span from, uh, again, the entry point of the Straits of Gibraltar all the way into the Black Sea. And I talk a little bit about those today and how they come together at this sweet spot that you're interested in, in the Eastern Mediterranean. So, slide. First big rock, the hub. The NATO Strategic Direction South hub is the Alliance's bold new initiative to connect, consult, and coordinate with countries across the Middle East and North Africa. It was established in September 2017 by my predecessor, Admiral Michelle Howard, at the headquarters in Naples, Italy. And the hub is the forum that brings together allies, partners, and subject matter experts to understand security challenges and seize opportunities for security cooperation in the African continent and in the Middle East. Here the hub team is briefing the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander, General Sir James Everhart, when he came to the headquarters about two weeks ago. The hub is located in a portion of the building at JFC Naples, which is completely unclassified. It's a fusion center. There is no cost of entry. There is no memorandum of agreement. It is come as you are. I have actually written letters to 28 FFRDCs and think tanks all over Europe, Africa, and here in the United States. I wrote one to CSIS and asked for your interest and your help, and hence Heather invited me to come and talk today about this one big rock, which is a big part of what we do. So, next slide. With a holistic and collaborative approach, the hub monitors and assesses the dynamic destabilizing conditions that proliferate violent extremism and undermine the rule of law in this area of interest, North Africa, Pan-Sahel, and parts of the Middle East. The mission is to help coordinate and synchronize NATO activities across the South, optimize resources, and maximize effectiveness. As innovative thinkers, I welcome all of you from CSIS, all aboard, come and help us out. Now we call this particular slide, it's not my slide, it comes from a research center in Norway, we call this the spaghetti chart. It is eerily familiar of what General McChrystal called his spaghetti chart for counterinsurgency operations and theater security cooperation in Afghanistan many years ago. You can see from the diagram that just how complex the problem is. These networks, which are represented by all the different colored arrows, contribute to illicit trafficking and lawlessness, trafficking in persons, trafficking in narcotics, trafficking in weapons, facilitated by terrorists as they make their way to the North Coast and refugees uh, come across the Mediterranean and into Europe, uh, some political, some economic. And it puts a terrible burden on the economies of Europe and the reason is because of lawlessness and lack of governance in some of these areas where we are trying to help. Now we've got to be invited in. And so the hub is just getting started. We're at the initial operational capability. 
we're advertising before we go to full operational capability, which I anticipate will be sometime on or about the NATO summit in July. And we look forward to your inputs and we look forward to collaboration with all our friends in this region of interest. That's the hub. Next. Another big rock and a big one, the NATO training activity in Iraq. Military training teams under NATO flag advise, assist, and train Iraqi forces, complementing ongoing coalition, EU, and United Nations efforts, comprising two forward locations in Taji and Bishmaya, and supported by a core team in Baghdad. Military and civilian personnel from allied and partner nations mentor Iraqi instructors in civilian military planning, equipment maintenance, explosive ordnance disposal, and military medicine. This is an example of how we're forming enduring coalitions in the Middle East to foster stability and security that denies safe havens for terrorists. Now, this is an interesting picture. And uh, there's some interesting men in this picture. It was taken last Wednesday when I was at the Ford Operating Base in Beshmaya. The gentleman who's standing right next to me with the beret and the Iraqi flag, that's Brigadier General Hanim, formerly Iraqi Navy. He's the head of the EOD School Center of Excellence in Beshmaya. We were training Iraqi soldiers uh, to get better at explosive ordnance disposal, dealing with unexploded ordnance, and also counter IED technology so they can deal with stuff all over the place, particularly uh, in places like Fallujah, Mosul, Raqqa. Uh, these are all, and Romani. These are all places that General Hanim has operated. General Hanim's troops were responsible for the preponderance of removal of unexploded ordnance that was on the surface blocking the way into Mosul. Now, he says there's still a heck of a lot of stuff there, buried and in buildings, and they're going to be doing this for quite some time. So they are going to continue to need our help. Now, these are some of his soldiers that were in training that day with NATO people. We have a couple of really sharp Canadians that were there a major and a command sergeant major who had served in Afghanistan, really good at their tradecraft, helping our Iraqi friends out. And I asked him, I said, can I meet your soldiers? He goes, sure. So we went down the line. I was really impressed. They're all young people, uh, under 30, and they all spoke English, and they all talked to me. And the guy right there in the black hat, that's, uh, they like that tactical gear that uh, a lot of people wear, contractors, Marines wear them, and they're off duty. So he's got his tactical gear on, he's very proud. And uh, General Hanim says, hey, this is one of my guys from Mosul. He's really good at what he does. He was gassed. I go, gassed? What do you mean? He goes, chlorine gas. So I'm looking at this young Iraqi soldier, and I go, you look pretty fit. How do you feel? Feel fine. Really? I said, what happened? He goes, well, device went off. There were nine of us. So me and eight of my friends, we were exposed. I said, what happened? He goes, well, we went to an American hospital, I assume a field hospital, and they helped us out. And I said, how are you doing? He goes, feel good, almost like he had fully recovered. I said, you're really, really lucky. You know, I come from a long line of military history in my family. Two grandfathers, First World War in the trenches with the Commonwealth for four years of combat. My father hit the beach in Normandy in 1944, and uh, my grandfather was gassed in the trenches, but he had a mask. These guys obviously did not. So. Uh, they need our help, and they need our help uh, in things that might be beyond just counter ID. They might need our help in uh, Saberni uh, dealing with chemical weapons. But uh, that is uh, a requirement that is yet to be determined. 
slide. This is uh, a similar group uh, on the battlefield in Bishmaya. Now that is an inert 500-pound bomb. They're learning how to disarm it. They're learning how to take the fuse and the detonator off without having the device blow up. It's uh, really good training. This is one of the largest training facilities in Iraq. It's spectacular and there's room for growth. And as I said, Brigadier General Hanim, he wants to make this the center of excellence for EOD, unexploded ordnance, and counter ID. Slide. We have a little video here that talks, uh, is the video? There we go. Let's see if IT works. Wait, okay. oh, there it is, there it is. Looks like you got it. <coughs> the preponderance of the training is uh, non-kinetic training that involves uh, how to deal with explosive ordnance disposal, counter IED, um, medical training, uh, triage, and uh, follow-on care for Iraqi forces in the field, and then uh, maintenance of equipment and logistics for some of the older Soviet-era equipment that exists on the ground uh, that the force has been using very effectively in the fight against ISIS. Let's go on to the third big rock slide. This is uh, NATO and the Western Balkans. It's been 18 years since the Adriatic naval blockade and airstrikes during NATO's first combat operations. Four security assistance missions demonstrate the Alliance's enduring commitment to the Balkans. The Kosovo Force, NATO headquarters Sarajevo, and the EU mission in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Althea, actually reports in once a month to our headquarters and we share information and share notes and every three months they come to the headquarters for a physical meeting with me. The NATO Liaison Office in Skopje and the NATO Military Liaison Office in Belgrade. K4 was established in 1999 as many of you know and is the largest NATO operation in Europe. As a Navy Admiral I am proud to command over 4,000 troops from 30 nations, 21 allies and 9 partner nations in K4. Recently, during the fall municipal elections, K-4 deployed 2,000, over half of the force, and 20 helicopters to safeguard democratic election sites. And I'm happy to report everything went off without a hitch, no incidents, and it was a good election. And uh, the municipalities freely elected their new mayors and new people for city council to represent their interests to Pristina. Now, some of the soldiers are from National Guard units, like the state of Arkansas, the Bowie Brigade. These young kids I visited just before Christmas are 5,000 miles from home, patrolling daily. It's kind of cold out there. It was about minus six below zero when I was there on the 22nd of December, outside of Camp Bonsteel. Bonsteel is a camp that we've been in for 19 years. As Robert Kaplan, one of my favorite authors in Balkan Ghosts, recounts, and they said this was a tour guide. It's actually turned out to be one of the best references on uh, the Balkans conflict uh, of any ever written. The region is a journey through history, but we have to look forward to the future, and we do. But things are still a little tense in the region. And uh, up until mid-January, I was very pleased that Belgrade and Pristina were having a dialogue. They call it the Belgrade-Pristina Dialogue. 
the, uh, the presidents were talking directly. President Thaci of Kosovo, President Vucic of Serbia were having a continuous dialogue about how do we improve border security, how do we improve relations, how do we uh, conduct uh, economic exchanges to make both of our countries better and used to one another. And then came the unfortunate assassination of a prominent Kosovo Serb politician, Oliver Ivanovic, in northern Mitrovica on the 16th of January earlier this year. Slide. He was the head of a new political movement, uh, Freedom uh, and Justice, the Freedom Way and Justice. And he was allied with, uh, neither with Belgrade nor Pristina. He was uh, an independent thinker. He was also highly vocal about corruption and organized crime. Somebody shot him five times in broad daylight about 8.15 in the morning as he was walking to his office on the 16th of January. In my humble opinion, this was a professional hit, an assassination designed to send a message. And the situation was tense. So Major General Salvatore Kowachi, who is the commander of K-4 on the left, and I decided to pay a visit to northern Mitrovica. So we arrived on the southern side, the Albanian side, and we met the Albanian mayor, Mr. Agim Batiri, very nice man, and his chief of police in southern Mitrovica. And then we walked across the very famous Austerlis Bridge, and uh, that was done with malice aforethought. Many of you know that I am a disciple and a mentee of Admiral Jim Stavridis. Jim Stavridis built bridges throughout his life, and he is doing so in academia right now. And so it was our intent to try to build a bridge after this tragedy. And so we walked across the Austerlitz Bridge with the mayor of South Mitrovica, and on the north side, we met the K-Serb mayor, Goran Rakic, and his deputy director of police, who was a very impressive Kosovo police officer in northern Mitrovica. We conducted a press conference. There were a lot of press there. I was surprised. Uh, a lot of people were concerned, and they asked us, is K-4 here to stay? Is K-4 going to protect us? Is K-4 going to provide security and stability? I was quick to remind them, K-4 is the third responder. The first responder is the Kosovo police. And the Kosovo police is improving its techniques, tactics, and procedures, and its ranks, and getting better and better every day. The second responder is ULEX, the European Union Law Enforcement Mission. And K-4 is there as a backup. But I reassured the people that were there because they were very concerned that, no, K-4 is not going away uh, anytime soon and that the reason that we came was to provide them reassurance. And then we walked into northern Mitrovica and walked around the town, and we met with uh, the mayor, Rakic, and his deputy uh, police chief at his headquarters, had a cup of coffee, and we talked about what was going on and, and thoughts about how we can improve security and how we can collaborate with one another. And we're there right alongside with them as they conduct this investigation. Okay, slide. Fourth big rock, Trident Juncture. Uh, I love this stuff. Those of you that know me from Ball Tops 2015, 2016, know that as a submariner, there's no other place I'd rather be than at sea, and I learned to really enjoy being on top of an amphibious vessel with 360-degree field of vision. Otherwise, it's tunnel vision through a periscope on a submarine at 32 degrees. So I went out in 15 with 5,000 persons, and about 50 ships and the same thing in 16. Well, this time Trident Juncture, which will take place between Iceland and Norway in October of this year, I'll command 35,000 troops uh, deploying to central and northern Norway in the largest NATO live X since 2015, and one of the largest NATO exercises in 20 years. 
30 allies of partners will combine forces coherently and effectively, deepening interoperability at every level. The exercise scenario will focus on joint task force headquarters and force elements on the challenge of operating in the northern region against any capable adversary. The span of command ranges across land, air, and sea, as I said earlier, throughout the northern region and will include opportunities for the alliance to operate in parallel alongside partner nations like Finland and Sweden, who were there with me in Baltops 2015 and 2016. As I said, this is not just uh, a component from the sea, slide. Also, the land component will be delivered from the air, and this will go on for a couple of weeks, 24-7 and 360 degrees around the compass. It's mutually beneficial to the Alliance and to our partners to form a durable, asymmetric strategic advantage that no competitor has the ability to rival. We're stronger together, and I think Trident Juncture will prove that. Next. Last big rock before I get into the Eastern Med, Multinational Division Southeast. Now this is a place I got there, I took a command in October. I have not been to Bucharest to see Multinational Division Southeast, but it's the new regional NATO headquarters in Bucharest, Romania, scheduled for full operational capability in March, and I'll be there about that time. Last year, they coordinated Exercise Noble Jump, deployed 5,000 troops and 500 vehicles of the very high readiness Joint Task Force, and the Alliance demonstrated rapid reception, staging, and onward movement across three countries in the strategic, the very strategic Black Sea region, a place where my friend Harlan Ullman is very interested in. He's got some uh, very good ideas. He's working with the Naval War College now on porcupine defense, which I find fascinating, and an area which Robert Kaplan is also interested in. If you haven't read the book, In the Shadow of Europe, I highly commend it to you. We all focus on these areas for NATO, the U.S., and Navy operations in Europe and Africa. And as background, we have context to discuss uh, the Eastern Mediterranean now as a uh, flashpoint. So let me roll right into that. We'll shift gears. <coughs> Next. The Eastern Med. Uh, it's a place of your interest and my interest. It's uh, a place that uh, during my time as a Sixth Fleet Commander, I used to call the sweet spot. My staff liked that, and they still do today. Where East meets West, where three combatant commanders operate on any given day, UCOM, AFRICOM, CENTCOM, with seamless connectivity across unified command plan lines, as though they don't exist. For those of you that know what the UCP is, it's how we divide up our combatant commanders. We work well together with the Fifth Fleet, and the Sixth Fleet, and CENTCOM, and NAVCENT. This area has become one of the most kinetic AORs on the globe. It took off when I was Sixth Fleet Commander, and in the summer of 2016, one of my officers, who was a surface warfare officer, used to count tonnage. At that time, Commodore Westbrook reported to me that we had 840,000 tons of gray-hulled U.S. flag warships in the Mediterranean. Two carrier strike groups at the same time, and one amphibious readiness group, all in support of Operation Inherent Resolve and Operation Odyssey Lightning in Libya. The carrier strikes from the Med in Iraq and Syria at that time were the first since 2002. We proved that we could do it and that we could fly over land. The Russians indeed responded with Kuznetsov's deployment to the Mediterranean, and they continued to increase the intensity of military activity uh, in the region. So the Kuznetsov operated for about 86 days in the Med from October 16 to January 17. 
This is not the fifth escadra of over 50 ships that I talked about earlier, but nonetheless, the strategic communication from the Russian Federation Navy is clear. They're not going to leave. Next slide. Wrong slide. Oh, uh, yeah, I think, I think we want to go to the uh, kilo slide first. Well, okay, let me talk about the kilos. So the Russians are preparing to deploy uh, six improved kilo-class attack submarines with caliber cruise missile uh, in and around the eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Uh, they've done so. This is a shot that took place from one of the kilos. Uh, what they've done, in my estimate, has been very impressive in moving these ships down there. The Russian Federation Navy deploys quiet, modern diesel submarines capable of launching cruise missiles. A kilo can go anywhere in European waters and strike any European or North African capital from underneath the sea. So it is important that we keep tabs on what they're doing. And Russia now has a naval base in the Eastern Mediterranean. Quite frankly, the deal with Syria was started back in 1971, but I think they have a lease for the next 50 years for Tartus and Latakia. So like I said, uh, they're not going away. This is something that uh, we'll have to deal with. Uh, slide. One of the other areas that uh, we operate in is the Black Sea. Uh, I operate uh, P-3 and P-8 uh, marine patrol aircraft there. We operate in international sea space and international airspace in accordance with rules, norms, and standards of behavior. Recently, you're probably familiar with an interaction that took place during an intercept op between one of our P-3s and a Russian Su-27, which was categorized as unsafe and unprofessional. And I'll let you decide. These are some photos that were taken from the cockpit. That is the, the slant of the cockpit window inside the U.S. aircraft looking at the Russian pilot and his aircraft slide. Another still of uh, that aircraft as it was conducting intercept ops for over two hours and 40 minutes uh, with the P-3 as it continued in international airspace. And then we have a video. Go ahead. I think this is the flyby. Next. What you're looking at is the Russian aircraft from the window. That's the propeller of the P-3. That's how close it was. At the end of uh, the interaction, the Russian pilot cleared to the right, came to the left, Afterburners aglow, and he closed to within five feet of the P-3 aircraft uh, before he went home. Uh, the turbulence from the afterburners rattled the personnel in the cockpit, and that is the portion of the interaction which we determined to be unsafe. So uh, we'll probably discuss this at the annual INC-C conference between our two nations, and it's a good thing that we have that dialogue so that we can express our concerns to our Russian counterparts. Slide. We have a capability in uh, four very capable Aegis-class destroyers uh, stationed in Rota, Spain. They're hardly ever there. They're underway uh, over half the time. And NATO and the U.S. need the, the right set of uh, measures of deterrence in order to help maintain a peaceful and secure environment in the Mediterranean. 
U.S. naval presence is foundational to the security strategy of the U.S. and NATO, and under the European phased adaptive approach, four of these multi-mission Arleigh Burke-class destroyers are forward deployed. By virtue of their location in Spain, they can go anywhere in the Med, they can go up north, they can also go into the Black Sea, uh, gratis of our uh, Turkish allies and the Montreux Convention. Two of the FDNF ships, USS Ross and USS Porter, launched Tomahawk strikes in response to the Assad's regime's use of chemical weapons in Syria. During such violations of international law and norms, uh, we have a requirement to demonstrate capability and a strong resolve with the alliance. Actions such as these support our national security strategy and our national defense strategy, which I'm sure you've all read. And uh, they're carried out by what our CNO just uh, articulated uh, about a week ago at the Heritage Foundation, carried out by the Navy the nation needs. So we need more of these ships and we need more forward presence in order to do this. Slide. We're also uh, in integrated air and missile defense. In 2015, we did our first SM-3 missile shot in the Hebrides range off of uh, the United Kingdom. That is a $13 million bullet. It's quite an expenditure for the United States to agree to do this, but we do it because we're in solidarity with our <coughs> European allies in defense of European capitals. And we did it again in November or October of 2017. And that's the shot uh, taking off of USS Donald Cook uh, against a target, a very long-range target, a very challenging target with NATO partners and allies in this ring of fire around the Cook, defending her from anti-ship cruise missiles, which were launched simultaneously. So our allies and partners are very interested in integrated air and missile defense, and they are building platforms and radars accordingly. And we're going to do this again in 2019, and we already have a groundswell of interest in that exercise, so I think it'll be uh, quite good to be able to get the allies and partners together and see how much progress they make about every two years is right because they'll make technological progress and they'll want to show us how far they've come. Slide. And I think this is my last slide. Uh, that is USS Dwight D. Eisenhower and uh, the uh, Charles de Gaulle sailing alongside in the Mediterranean. The U.S. is committed to actively and collectively defending our NATO uh, partners and allies in the international community to degrade and disrupt any terrorist organizations uh, or anyone that brings about instability to the region. Our national security strategy and our national defense strategy both talk about our greatest asset, allies and partners. I am a firm transatlanticist. I believe in the NATO alliance, and I will tell you that everywhere I go, just like Jim Stavridis did, is a habit I got from him, I carry a pocket copy of the NATO charter. Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, and it is a defensive alliance. We don't go looking for a fight. We're there to defend and to deter. And those are the two most favorite words of the Secretary General whenever he makes a speech. Our presence in Europe and our relationships built over the past 70 years provide the U.S. strategic access critical to respond to threats against our allies and partners. Every day, our allies and partners join us in defending freedom, deterring war, and maintaining rules which underwrite a free and open international order and we will continue to do so. Subject to your questions, I thank you very much for your attention and your indulgence today. I'm delighted to be here, and I look forward to interacting with each and every one of you. Thank you. Do you want me in the center? Or the you can go Okay.
Admiral, thank you very much for that thank presentation. You. Thank you. Um, there's an awful lot in your portfolio. I just wanted to dig down a little deeper sure. on your last point, which is about how much we share. And increasingly, I think there's a sense that we're worried about how much we share with a, an important NATO ally, Turkey. Uh, article in uh, Defense One today saying we should sanction Turkey, that uh, we disagree fundamentally about how to deal with the conflict in Syria, that uh, Turkey's actions are not justified under international law. How should we think about the Turkey-NATO relationship going forward, cognizant of the fact that we had a relationship with Pakistan where we tried to sanction them and they went the wrong way, but it seems that, that we're increasingly in conflict with, with their actions in a sense that, that they're not going the right way. Should we be firmer? Should we be more understanding? I think the, uh, the most important thing is that, uh, I go back to the NATO charter, uh, Turkey is a member of the NATO alliance. Uh, so they are an ally and they are a friend. I have uh, very professional Turkish officers in my headquarters. I know uh, personally the Turkish CNO, Admiral Osbal. Uh, we just spoke recently at the 700th anniversary of the Portuguese Navy, and uh, we have several things that we're planning on doing, and I will be in Turkey in a couple of months uh, for a visit, and uh, I will go to more than one place uh, on, the, on the maritime side, in the maritime domain. So I think it is uh, critical that we continue uh, to talk with our Turkish allies about uh, their security concerns and their security interests. And I think we have uh, established uh, some uh, rationale and some lines for what we are doing, and we are doing our best to understand and be interlocutors for what they are doing to defend their own security interests. And I believe that the most important thing is that Turkey remains a strong ally in the alliance because they have a very credible force both uh, on the land, in the air, and on the sea. And they are, uh, we are all stronger together as we work together. Are there any problems with the alliance? Is Turkey's politics turn more authoritarian? Do you think that should be off the table? Is it uh, a distraction? So uh, mill to mill, uh, I see no issues. And uh, when issues come up, they, they tend to be political. That is something that is not in my domain as a commander of JFC Naples or as a commander of Naval Forces Europe or Naval Forces Africa. So I leave those to uh, whether it be officers or civilian uh, civil servants on both sides and at NATO headquarters to resolve these things. And there is something back in 1966, which you may recall, from a former Secretary General, uh, Secretary General Lunds. It's called the Lunds Doctrine. And that is that as military officers and uniform side, we shall not be deterred by any political disagreements in the alliance, things that involve uh, you know, borders or uh, particular disagreements. We will continue to move, move forward and we will continue to do what we do as military men and women and brothers and sisters in support of the alliance 
and we'll leave that for the folks in Brussels to resolve and dialogue and uh, uh, hopefully come to some kind of mutually acceptable agreement. Um, Admiral, thank you so much. That was an amazing uh, tour de force. Uh, what the thought that kept coming through my mind is, you know, this is not your father's NATO. Uh, no. You started yeah. the slide in, you know, Trans-Sahara. We went to uh, to Iraq. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, thank you for also mentioning the Western Balkans, which does not get talked about as much. Um, I, as we've been studying this region, what we've been struck by is that there's a crowding out effect of, of U.S. influence and posture in the region. China is one uh, of those countries that uh, between Belt and Road, which we're seeing increased infrastructure uh, along the Mediterranean, whether that's in Greece, whether we see that uh, coming in, even in the Western Balkans uh, with the 16 plus one process. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could speak to China's role. You mentioned you were just in Djibouti and mentioned uh, what an incredible Chinese presence was there. How does that impact uh, your operating environment? And then I wanna just pull out a little bit more. You mentioned in your presentation you know, sort of a question of how do we deal with this growing Russian anti-access area denial posture, whether that's Tartus, Latakia. Are, are you feeling that there's a crowding out of U.S. Uh, military posture in the Eastern Mediterranean? Okay, so let me take the first, uh, this is a three-part question. Uh, <laughs> I like to so, sneak them in, sorry. So it's, it's, uh, it's not your father's NATO. Well, you are absolutely right. So my father was, uh, a uh, Strathcona, a Canadian officer, 32 years in the Canadian Armed Forces, and he was stationed in Rheindalen, which was the Land Component Command, Joint Force Headquarters Rheindalen and Mönchengladbach, when he and my mother had me. I was born there in 1959. This is definitely not your father's NATO, because if my father was here right now, he's probably rolling over right now thinking that his son joined the Navy and became a four-star officer in charge of a joint force command in Naples, Italy, when he worked for the land component, and that now I'm in charge of some land component forces as a naval officer. So no, it is definitely not your father's NATO. Things have changed, and I think things have changed for the better, and that's what I would tell my dad if he was here right now. Secondly, on crowding out, um, I think that they're a, a wonderful group of uh, amazingly smart people in this room, uh, international relations scholars, academics, uh, people who are interested uh, in work in government service, work for many uh, uh, different foreign nations who are here today, and thank you very much for all of you that came. Um, I think that uh, there's a move more towards bilateralism than multilateralism in the world today. We're starting to see more bilateral agreements, and that's okay, that's something we're gonna have to come to grips with. I still believe in international norms and standards and rules of behavior. I firmly believe in the power of the alliance. As I said, stronger together. I think the alliance is probably one of the most successful. It's been going on for over 70 years. Uh, and it represents uh, a mass of wealth. If you added up everybody's GDP, I don't think there's another organization like that that can field military power in the world collectively together. Uh, collective defense is very strong. But at the same time, I respect our partners and allies' uh, desire to want to negotiate some kind of terms with another nation that may not be as friendly or may be a peer competitor with either the United States or with NATO's interests. That is certainly within their right to do so. I was asked in Belgrade a lot about 
do you have any problem with uh, dialogue between Belgrade and Russia? No, no. Serbia is an independent state. Serbia is a sovereign state. Serbia can make up its own mind. What I am interested in is continuing the good relations with Serbian armed forces and NATO. We just did a big airborne exercise. I had several of my people from uh, JFC Naples headquarters, non-commissioned officers there with the 63rd Serbian uh, Parachute Battalion. The Ohio National Guard has one of the most successful uh, state partnership programs with the Serbian Armed Forces of any in the world. And I've talked to General Langell, who's our member on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, about just how successful that was. I called him before I went in. Um, so I think we see a little bit more bilateralism than we do multilateralism uh, alliances, maybe a, a draw towards uh, making bilateral deals, and that's fine. That's just something that we've got to deal with. Uh, on China, uh, so China has made a remarkable rise in the last five years. Um, you may recall, Heather, we talked in the past about the role that I played in uh, uh, negotiating the rules of behavior in the maritime domain with the PLA Navy back in 2013. And uh, we actually signed an agreement for the ASEAN summit on rules of behavior, and uh, this was something that was interesting to me over the course of a year where I had an opportunity to meet with Chinese interlocutors and counterparts. Uh, they stated at the time that they were interested in a one belt, one road strategy, and uh, they have delivered. So they have a, uh, a belt in the road that will take them from uh, their home base through the Indian Ocean, up through the Red Sea, uh, into the Suez Canal, the Mediterranean, and they recently operated in the Mediterranean and they operated in the Baltic uh, as part of the counter uh, piracy task force with uh, uh, other friends of their own. Uh, they have built a uh, very large and impressive naval base called Dorale in Djibouti. Uh, we have no issues with that. This is, uh, Djibouti is a uh, sovereign country and uh, Djibouti can negotiate whatever terms they want in terms of businesses or relationships with other countries. Uh, I had an opportunity to uh, see Dorale from the air when I flew into Djibouti. It's quite an impressive facility. We also have an impressive facility in Djibouti, Camp Lemonnier. The United States is the third largest employer and the third greatest contributor to the gross domestic product of Djibouti. We have over 1,000 Djiboutians on our base every day as day workers in support. And I don't think that is lost on our Djiboutian friends and counterparts. So I think uh, this is something that is going to continue to develop as we wrestle with uh, uh, the new normal uh, in the world today and as people look to form uh, multiple sets of relationships and they're more than within their sovereignty to do so. So thanks for the question. Before we go answer. to the audience, I do want to go to the audience. You mentioned a, a sort of increase in bilateralism. Mm -hmm. um, while it's not part of your, your uh, European responsibilities per se, the, the potential for an increased naval cooperation with Israel is I think an intriguing idea for security in the Eastern Mediterranean. Are there any parameters you think should guide how we engage with the Israeli Navy on, on maritime security issues? Um, well, when you say an increasing uh, relationship with the Israeli Navy, I don't know how it could be any better. Um, I mean, they are just fantastic uh, uh, partners, uh, very supportive. Uh, we've done uh, things with them in terms of 
uh, joint patrols uh, were in there visiting the Israelis, uh, uh, you know, many times throughout the year, both in, uh, in the U.S. and, in fact, uh, they do come into Europe and they have uh, some representation, um, you know, with NATO counterparts in uh, European theater. So I think uh, Israel is, uh, is a rock in a place that's in a very tough neighborhood. Uh, they've always been a, a close ally and a friend, and a relationship with the Israeli Navy has, in my humble estimation, since I was a one-star and a three-star fleet commander and now as a four-star, it's never been better. So I'm pretty happy with the way it's going now. Thank you. Thanks, Admiral Fogo. We have about 10 minutes. We want to pull some questions from our audience. Um, if you could please identify yourself and briefly state your question. We're going to try to bundle a few. I'm going to throw one in before I gather, sure. uh, Admiral Fogo. I would love for you to talk about how you're working more closely with the European Union in maritime security, uh, particularly in the Eastern and Central Mediterranean, uh, as working together with Operation Sophia, particularly on the migration question. So I wanted to slip one in here. So, sir, we'll begin with you, and then we'll go with Catherine, and then we'll let the Admiral. Uh, Christopher Marshall, I'm a transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund doing a study on the future of transatlantic relations, and I just would like to continue where Heather just uh, uh, led, led the discussion. We were shown this picture with all these migration flows. Uh, how do you look at that, and what is the role of NATO in there? Um, is that a destabilization? Is that something uh, one can contain, or is it more a natural force, given how poor Africa is, how rich Europe is? And mainly, what is, what is the role of, of NATO? Is there any role? Wonderful. And Donna, right here to Catherine. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Admiral, thank you so much for being here and for your thoughts. Thanks, On Russia. In Moscow, the Russian national security community will say, and they tell me often, that we are the ones being provocative. We, the U.S., we, the NATO alliance as a whole. We're the ones, our NATO pilots, who do not turn on our transponders, for example, when we're flying. It's not the Russians. But when we look at the footage that you showed and footage that you've had in the past, gives the lie to that kind of view. That raises a really tough question. If our intent is to deter, to prevent not only mishap, but also miscalculation, how much in the maritime arena is enough? And how much, if anything, might actually be too much? Thank you. Admiral, I'll turn to you. OK, great. <clears throat> so on uh, the issue of migration and uh, the problems that it has created, um, why do people want to come to Europe? Because they have no safe haven to live in. Because there are bombs dropping on their neighborhood. Because they feel like they have no future for their children because they can't go anywhere, they can't do anything, they can't get a job, they can't maintain a job, they can't send their kids to school. Because they're in a zone uh, which is strife with conflict and war. And uh, if you look, at, uh, I'm a huge fan of the media, and if you look at uh, what the media has done is they've gone to a lot of these places, uh, villages, towns, and cities, uh, many of which I've been to before. You know, talk about Mosul, and uh, General Hanim and I were talking about Mosul. I was there with uh, General Ham and Admiral Mullen 10 years ago. Uh, the difference between then and now is, is stark, and uh, it's just terrible. I mean, uh, much of the city and much of the infrastructure has been destroyed. It's going to take uh, billions. There's a donors conference in Kuwait this week, and hopefully the donors will be uh, uh, very generous in 
helping Prime Minister Abadi rebuild as uh, ISIS has now left uh, the region. But we need to establish governance and rule of law, uh, safety and stability. And that is what uh, the hub is all about. The hub uh, is uh, a fusion organization. We connect and we collaborate. Uh, we bring in international organizations. Perhaps a nation uh, doesn't know about some of these places that can help. NGOs are some of my favorite people. Uh, I, I talked to them and USAID throughout the conflict in Libya and uh, was able to glean all sorts of information about uh, migration, third country nationals, movements throughout the country, uh, places where we wanted to go to help or places where we probably didn't want to go because the security uh, was very, very difficult. And so that's what we're trying to do. Uh, on the particular operation you mentioned, uh, Operation Sophia, I'm very impressed with uh, what the European Union has done over the course of the last three years with Op Sophia. I think they've, uh, they've rescued somewhere in the realm of, uh, Pamela, you can check me on the number, over 40,000 lives saved at sea. And every week you read about a, another one of these rubber craft that uh, goes down in the med and several people drown or die because they can't swim. It's, it's horrific. Uh, there is no room for that in a modern world, and especially in waters that, that border on uh, very affluent, civilized Western nations. Uh, and so they're trying to help. Uh, a couple of things about that. The selection of the name is important. As an American, I was struck by that. The admiral that's in charge of Operation Sophia is a personal friend of mine, Rear Admiral Enrico Credendino. He is an impressive guy. The reason that he has stayed there is because he's done such a good job. And they like him in the uh, European Union, and they like him in Italy, and he has the full confidence of his country. When I asked him about the name, I said, well, how'd you come up with that name? You know, we come up with these random number generators, Joint Task Force Odyssey Dawn. I thought that was an odd one. And he goes, well, Sophia, uh, the first Italian ship, that picked up uh, refugees during the operation. Uh, there were probably 300 people in this little boat. We got them all on deck, and there was a woman who was pregnant and about to give birth, and she did, right on the deck of that warship. And she named that little girl Sophia, hence the name of the operation. And they tracked Sophia. They tracked her from birth to her first birthday and now to her third birthday. And I have pictures in some of my presentations about her. That's an incredibly powerful strategic communication. It's the kind of thing that when you see the picture of that little girl who lived and could have possibly have drowned with her mother in the Mediterranean had they not come to rescue her, uh, she has her whole life ahead of her, you know, and that's what it's all about. Now we've got to figure out, instead of saving lives at sea, so last, which we all do well, how to save the lives on the land, in, in the home areas where people live, and establish a rule of law. Uh, so I think that talks to Sophia and it also talks to uh, the migration question. Um, on Catherine's question of the provocative nature, there's always a tit for tat when these kinds of uh, issues come up where uh, it's either an aircraft or a ship. Uh, I can assure you of one thing, that uh, ships under my command or ships under NATO command sail in international waters and international airspace. So as I said, deterrence and defense, not offense. We're not looking for a fight. Uh, we expect that at any time an intercept can happen. We also expect and require that intercepts are done professionally and safely. 
And when they are not, we will protest them. We will not go away because there has been something untoward happen in international airspace. We are going to continue to exercise our right of freedom of navigation and freedom of operation in these airspaces, which are guaranteed for everybody by international law and uh, rule of order. I learned a lot from the Chinese during that one year I talked to you about. And there was one interlocutor who I was extremely impressed with. His name was Rear Admiral Li Ji. He came to the United States and I missed him when he uh, was on his retirement tour. He was the guy who was the Chinese naval officer on the other side of the table when we negotiated. And uh, he spoke English like an Oxford professor. Charming and disarming. You had to be careful about the Stockholm Syndrome. I'm a red-blooded American. I represent my interests and I'm a patriot of this country. Uh, but I was impressed with his ability to uh, articulate in the English language. And one day he said to me, we are stuck on terms. Yes, we are. It was a question of, shall we call this rules or shall we call this standards of behavior? It went on for hours and hours, the hours turned into days and we weren't making any progress. It was like nuclear arms control, churning that coffee grinder and arguing about one or two words. And he said, you and I will have to work this out. You and I should have breakfast. And I said to one of my friends from the Office of Secretary of Defense, I think I'd like to do that. Is that okay? Sure, go down and have breakfast with Rear Admiral Lee Ji. Well, the first thing I found is that what uh, a Chinese admiral has for breakfast is not exactly what an American admiral has for breakfast. No omelets, bacon, eggs, or toast, or anything else. There was very exotic food there. So I just had a cup of tea, and we chatted. And he said, do you know why we're here? Fogo Shangzhong, that was uh, my honorary rank. They called me General Fogo because they don't have the rank of admiral in the PLA Navy, it's general. And I said, yeah, I thought we were here to negotiate terms of rules of behavior in the maritime domain. He goes, oh, no, 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 that's not why we're here. We are here because if President Xi, and at that time, President Obama decide that our two nations will go to war, that is their decision. Now, they're not gender neutral in their Navy or their armed forces, so to, to quote what he said, that is not the decision for men in the cockpit of an aircraft or men on the bridge of a ship. And I said, well, I couldn't agree with you more. This is why we're trying to establish a set of norms or standards of behavior for our warships and for our aircraft as they come in close proximity to one another in the South China Sea. And the same thing applies in the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, and all over the region that I operate in. I thought that was prophetic advice, and I adhere to it. So it's our job to de-escalate. It is our job to deter and defend, but it is not our job to escalate. If we have to defend ourselves, we have defensive rules of engagement, and by God, we will use them. And my people are well-trained on that. Uh, but it is our job to deter and defend and to de-escalate. And I'll leave it right there. Well, I have a perfect way to, to end the conversation. I think I can speak on behalf of everyone here that we are all aboard. Uh, and uh, thank you, Admiral. You've been incredibly generous to think tanks. We've always benefited from this exchange. You have an unbelievable geographic reach from the Arctic 
to South Africa, uh, which just says the responsibility on your shoulders is great, but we have great confidence that you've got this. So please Thanks, join Ellen. me in thanking Admiral Fogo for a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.